Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I just spoke with Chuck Wooldridge about his really beautiful new book, City of Virtues, Nanjing in an Age of Utopian Visions. This came out in 2015 with the University of Washington Press. Now, you'll hear me talk um, at length in the next hour about how beautifully written this book is, and it really, really is. This is a book that's written by a writer who's prioritizing the craft, um, and as a result of that, it's a real pleasure to read, as well as being really, really informative and showcasing a very compelling argument. So the book uses Nanjing um, as a focus and as a case study for looking at the age of utopian visions in the early 19th century in China. So it takes us through a series of case studies and kind of localities in time through which Nanjing was envisioned and re-envisioned, constructed and reconstructed, written and rewritten as a, as a utopian space that had different kinds of relationships, but always had some sort of a relationship to larger scopes of the empire and the cosmos and to smaller scales of the individual person, the individual text, and the embodied ritual, and also the building. So over the course of the chapters, you'll meet some amazingly fascinating individuals and read about some really very touching, very wrenching, and sometimes really funny moments um, in this story that are also showcasing a really fascinating source base that Chuck is writing from. It's a beautiful book, um, as I'll say again, and this is not the last time that you will hear that over the next hour, and it was a real pleasure to talk with Chuck about it. So definitely um, get your hands on a copy of it. Um, If you can, it's definitely worth reading, and you don't have to be an expert in China studies in order to read it and enjoy it. It's very, very clear, um, and it's very, very well written to facilitate a very broad kind of audience um, and readership. So thank you very much for listening. Thanks for supporting the channel by doing so, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Chuck Wooldridge about his new book, City of Virtues. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Chuck, and thanks both for making time to talk with me today and also for writing such a compellingly argued and beautifully, beautifully, beautifully written book. I'm really, really looking forward to talking with you about this today, and I'm grateful for your time. Well, thanks so much to you, Carla. Coming from you, uh, particularly the beautiful writing compliment is quite uh, is uh, quite meaningful. I appreciate it. Well, and I'm very happy to be here. Well, thanks. Well, it's gorgeous, and we're definitely going to talk about that aspect of it. Um, so thank you. So let's start out um, at the beginning, as we usually do for the channel, and talk about how you came to the field, and specifically, why Chinese history and why this particular period of Chinese history. Yeah, so um, when uh, I was in college, I... Uh, I was born in Germany. Um, my father was in the military, and um, I was an exchange student in Germany. And all, all the time I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a historian, but I thought I was going to be a historian of Germany or Europe, um, maybe maybe a medievalist. I didn't know. Um, but I had a distribution requirement at, um, at Swarthmore, and uh, I wound up in um, this class of people who um, had all been in China or Taiwan um, – during the uh, Tiananmen Square and its aftermath. Um, so this dates me. So this was 1990. <laughs> uh, and, um, and of course, at that time, a lot was happening in the world. The, the Berlin Wall had fallen. I, I think I tell the story in the book of um, finding out the Berlin Wall was fi- falling. I'm making a sandwich, and uh, somebody tells me the wall is coming down, and I look at the wall in front of me like, what? <laughs> uh, and then I, I realized, because he, a, a he was in my German classes, that he was talking about the Berlin Wall, um, and uh, and there was all the issues of Tiananmen, and, and uh, it was not at all clear what direction China was going to head in. And so, in the seminar um, taught by Lillian Lee, who's a fantastic uh, professor and scholar, um, me and my classmates would just would would have class, which would be was an evening class, and we talk about modern Chinese history, and then we we'd meet after class and bake cookies or hang out at somebody's house and drink beer. And just try to figure out what the implications of what we were talking about in class were for China at that time, and try to figure out just what was going on, um, because it really it was not it was not clear at all in 1990 what what the uh, what the fallout was going to be. Um, so those conversations and those classmates are really what got me interested in Chinese history. Um, awesome. And then the other part of the question: this part of Chinese history. Um, 
I think uh, partly that class, Lillian is a, is a Qing specialist. And then um, I graduated from college and wound up going to University of Washington to get a master's degree and worked with Kent Guy. And between my classmates and Kent Guy, um, I really, um, I really started to find the Qing quite compelling. Um, and, uh, you know, in the mid nineties was when we started getting some of the, um, some of the works talking about emperorship and empire and, um, and really beginning to think about the Qing in a new, in a new way. And it was really exciting. Um, the, the fruits of the access that people had gained in the eighties to the, um, to the archives, um, were really beginning to pay off. And so, um, and so that's, that's kind of how I got into it. And it's also how I got into the larger issue in the book of kind of political imagination. Like, um, these things happen and they seem to come out of nowhere, like the falling of the Berlin wall or the storming of Nanjing by these, you know, South China long hairs. And, um, that's an excellent um, sound effect, by the way, that you yes, exactly. managed it's, 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 to incorporate. Exactly. I'll just turn off my horn here. Um, <laughs> Go and, on, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, I've lost my train of thought, I'm afraid. Oh, Nanjing. Why Nanjing? Why political um, sort of issues in Nanjing? And sort of why you were talking about why you came right. to this particular. So, so um, the... The, the biggest sort of framing issue for me is the question of political imagination and how can it be that these things happen completely unexpectedly or seemingly completely unexpectedly at the time and then you can kind of go back and put, put back the pieces of how they happened. Um, and I keep going back to a line by William Blake, what is, what is now proven was once only imagined. Um, so the idea that um, actually people have within their... Um, within their lives, these ways of thinking about the future. And that if you took them seriously and really kind of tried to follow up on them, you'd have a much wider spectrum of ideas about where the world could go. And that might uh, prepare you for the idea that, um, you know, the Berlin wall could fall or people could um, protest in Tiananmen square or Taiping could storm Nanjing, or, you know, we could invade Iraq and it wouldn't be popular or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing might be. Um, so that, that kind of issue of sort of um, what do you imagine is possible and how do you expand the, the realm of things that you imagine is possible um, was really kind of motivating to me. Um, and then your question is why Nanjing? Uh, Nanjing was just – it began as um, an interest in the Taiping as a particular example of this. And then, um, you know, I was, I was – uh, my advisor, Suna Khan, who you know very well. Yeah. Um, was of course uh, was interested when I was sort of presenting to her the idea of thinking about uh, ritual and um, and uh, imagination in particular. She was pressuring me to you know as she should to uh, to kind of come up with a source base. Um, and in the library, we had a, a collection of um, a catalog of the old Nanjing of the old National Central Library, so from when it was based in Nanjing, um, and it had these documents of ritual practices and memorials built after the rebellion, after the Taiping War. Um, so it seemed like there were going to be some sources there that uh, were interesting to me and sort of relevant to this idea of everything gets destroyed and then what do you do with it and how do you imagine the new world will be? Um, so that's, uh, that's seemed promising and that, uh, that's what took me to Nanjing. So the book itself that we're talking about today uses Nanjing as a lens with which to explore some really key questions. So I'll just lay out some of those questions right from the book, right at the beginning, so that listeners have a little bit of a context for understanding what's going to come next. So why did utopian movements proliferate in the 19th century? What tactics did they use to make their actions in the city seem to resonate in empire and in the cosmos? What kinds of urban change resulted? What do utopian methods of questioning Qing power tell us about the 20th century emergence of the ideals of republicanism and citizenship? And so what the chapters of the book are going to do is really explore these questions and explore the ways that a series of communities and individuals with a series of utopian visions in China specifically um, helped to reshape and create the space of this city and make the past, as you um, put it in the book, available to the present, and we'll talk about that as well, 
using three predominant methods, construction, writing, and ritual. Okay, so we'll get to all of that in much more detail in the hour to come. But in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about how this went from dissertation to book. So in that transition from a dissertation to a book, were there any major transformations in how you were thinking about or structuring the project, or were there any major changes for you in how you were thinking about the kind of work that you wanted this to do? Um, yeah, there was, a very, there was a very large change. My, um, my dissertation was called uh, Transformations of Ritual and State in 19th Century Nanjing. Um, and the, the idea was that you could, you could get a kind of empire-wide look at, at shifts in imagining the polity uh, by looking at changes in ritual and particularly um, state ritual practices. So who's contributing state ritual practices? What are they doing? Who, what, what kind of God or what kind of person gets enshrined in different, um, in different state cults? Um, so a good chunk of the dissertation was, uh, was using Nanjing as a case study of this larger uh, phenomenon of ritual change. Um, and, uh, I finished it because, um, it was, it was unwieldy and it, it took me a long time. Uh, and it was hard for, for a number of reasons, but, uh, um, I, I felt like I needed something more streamlined for the book. And what seemed to make the most sense was to make the book about Nanjing and to leave the ritual stuff, um, for some other project. It took me, um, a fair bit of time to come to that conclusion. But, um, but I think, um, uh, um, you know, my advisor, Sue, uh, had this comment, which was that um, the, uh, the chapters focusing on people have a pleasing focus, I think is what she said, or the, the chapters concerning people have a pleasing focus. So at some point I came up with the idea that you could have um, biographies of individuals, or you could structure a book around biographies of individuals in the city and, through that, you could talk about transformations of the city and, and changes in the ways, it, not changes exactly, but, um, but, but the different ways that people use the city uh, in the 19th century. Um, and that seemed to be a much more doable project and a much more sort of streamlined book than the, um, than I, than the kind of wedding two, two projects on top of one another. Now, one of the really striking things about the book, um, from my perspective, and one of the really pleasing things, to use Sue's word, um, about the book, um, is the writing. This is really obviously, um, at, at least it seems to obviously be the product of somebody who is really thoughtful and really careful about their craft, not just at the level of overall structure, which is absolutely true, but also at the level of the sentence and at the level of the musicality of sentences as they flow into and speak to one another. And that's very, very unusual to find in a history book. And I read a lot of them these days. So take it <laughs> from me. Um, it's really, really striking. So I think um, let's spend a little bit of time talking about how you approach your craft as a writer. Um, mm -hmm. And really, I just want to kind of open this up for you. For you, what were some of the important writing strategies that you brought to bear in creating this object that you would want to um, share with us? Right. So, um, well, the first thing to say is that um, Sue in particular, and uh, also Toby Meyer Fong, who I, I talked to a lot uh, in the course of writing this, um, she, uh, she, was, she also worked, of course, on a, on a fantastic book on the on the Taiping. And, um, while I was working on my dissertation, she was working on that. And we, um, um, we were able to exchange ideas and she, she read a, a number of things. Um, and, uh, she really encouraged me. So both of them really encouraged me to pay attention to writing that, um, you, you'll feel better about the book if it's something pleasing to read. So I had that kind of motivation already. Um, also, as you may know, my wife's an editor, um, so I had uh, this fantastic resource at the end of the process. Um, she she read it and, and commented on the uh, did a um, did a line edit of some of the of some of the chapters. So that was um, great um, and uh, um, really helpful. But uh, in terms of the process, what what happened actually is that um, I was in uh, I think the second year of my of my teaching position and just got um, pretty hopelessly blocked. Um, so, uh, the, the writing process for me was not smooth and, uh, um, musical or, or anything like that at all. It was mostly me ripping out my, um, uh, my hair and not producing much at all. And, uh, 
what I wound up doing is reading works of creative nonfiction, uh, mostly by New Yorker writers or former New Yorker writers. Um, and there was one in particular that I loved um, by a writer named Lawrence Weschler. Um, and the title of the book was um, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. Um, it's a biography or a series of conversations with Robert Irwin, who's a California artist about art. Um, and um, it, it seemed to me that Weschler was able to write these very smooth, fluid sentences about very complex ideas um, and that I was getting all blocked up because I was writing these sentences that were kind of, um, I, I think, I think the problem ultimately was that I was critiquing myself at the level of the sentence. Um, and I think it's important to critique your own work and obviously to think about the ideas you're using. But if you are writing sentences and in the middle of the sentence already trying to anticipate the criticisms that the sentence is going to get, um, what you wind up is these little medieval fortress sentences. And maybe you can finish the sentence, but then there's no, there's no next thought, right? Because you've, I've, I've kind of mentally circled the wagons. Um, so what I wound up doing was writing, ran a, a, a fan letter, um, um, I wrote him an email saying, I looked him up and said, look, um, you have this amazing way of, of communicating ideas. How do you do it? Um, and I, uh, uh, much to my surprise, I got um, an incredibly generous response. He invited me to sit in on his um, creative nonfiction class, um, uh, which I did. And, and he kind of turned the focus to storytelling um, and using storytelling as a way to make arguments happen so that if in, in, in telling a story, um, the, the next sentence is the next thing in the story. And if you have a protagonist, if you, uh, you know, structure the chapters around people, then that helps you kind of get to the next idea. And in the course of doing that, you're still able to make one hopes complex arguments backed up by considerable evidence. Um, but, uh, it solved the problem for me of, um, uh, of just what, what to write next. And of, I, I, I came on block. It was, um, it was amazing. And it was still a long process of writing the thing. Um, and then the other sort of uh, life hacker, little trick um, that I did, I wrote most of it. Uh, I drafted most of it in longhand um, mm -hmm. because um, that turns out to be the speed at which I think. Um, and something about the physical process of, of handwriting um, was useful to me. So, so my three answers are one, try to learn from people who write well, try to take writing seriously. And then, um, you know, writing longhand. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's, that's what made the book as it is. I actually have a copy of that, um, that book that you mentioned, the Weschler book um, yeah. on my shelf because of you, cause I had heard you oh, uh, recommend it somewhere mm -hmm. and I thought, huh, and it's, it is an amazing book. <laughs> So, Chuck, so let's get into it, right? Let's get into the book itself, and we can um, come back to some of these issues as well mm -hmm. along the way. So the book uses a series of five-body chapters to take us into different contexts and different um, really stories. I think that's a, storytelling is a great way to think about this, um, really stories that help collectively build up this argument that's developed through the book. And I'm going to lay this argument out in the words of the book here. So this is a quote for listeners, because again, it's one of many, many, many beautiful sentences that does this work much better than I can. So here we go. The argument developed throughout the book, shaping Nanjing cityscape allowed people to delineate the abstract spaces of empire and cosmos and to define virtues. This is an important word, virtues, that would allow for effective action in those spheres. Conflicts among advocates of different utopian visions and between those visionaries and the Qing state arose from arguments about space and successive understandings of space in turn implied changing views of political participation. Okay, so that's the argument that we're going to see developed through the book. And the first chapter that does this focuses on Qianlong. Now, Qianlong made six tours of southern China in the 18th century. And in the course of these tours, as you describe in this chapter, he inserted himself into the cityscape and he created forms of space. The chapter is going to argue that understanding these tours, understanding the forms of space that they created and the reasons that he stopped is going to help us make sense of the age of utopian visions in the 19th century that's going to follow. So this is going to lay some foundations here. Okay, so let's just talk about some moments here. One of the really striking things 
about this chapter is Qianlong's interest in ruins. Okay, so oh. ruins, this is, a, this is a hugely interesting theme throughout all the chapters, the theme of ruins and traces and stains. So he was particularly interested in, um, for example, the ruins of Ming tombs. So let's start there. For Qianlong, um, can you talk about the importance of his engagement with the built landscape of Nanjing and ruins of Ming tombs specifically? Oh, can I? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, in preparation for this, I was reading parts of my book, and it was sort of like uh, I, I forgot that I had written them, and I was occasionally like, "Oh, that's a good point," or "That's interesting." <laughs> that was really great. <laughs> kind of this weird, weird out of body reading experience. <laughs> that's um, great. Well, the first, uh, the, the 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 inspiration for this idea of Qianlong and ruins comes from a great article by Jonathan Hay uh, in late Imperial China, um, uh, and also from the work of Michael Chang. Um, and the the kind of uh, global argument about Qianlong is that he's got this universal emperorship, and uh, you know one of the one of the great um, historical histor- one of the great contributions of scholarship of the last twenty years has been to kind of try to restore a sense of the empire from um, the point of view of the emperor, the multi ethnic empire, and, and and things like that, um, and then to kind of take it to different physical locations and see what it looked like how it might have looked differently in different places. So, um, you know, Mount Tai is one, or uh, Wu Taishan is another. There are a number of, of works that really explore um, this idea. And so kind of taking off from that, um, I tried to look at what Qianlong did in Nanjing, where he, what, what, what sites did he choose to visit and what happened to those sites. Um, and the, the, the basic idea is that he would go to sites and write poetry about them and um, – that poetry would be would be recorded in gazetteers, but then there would also often be um, steely inscriptions or other uh, or other kinds of um, sort of physical writing in the city. Um, and um, the the basic argument is that uh, Chenlong is on the one hand using tropes and techniques that uh, elites in Nanjing have been using for years and years and years. And it, uh, to to a large extent, he's he's repeating those those tropes and ideas, and um, kind of quote, quoting the poetry of others. Um, but the the particular context, is, of course, is that it's the emperor doing it. So um, he's he's offering to Nanjing this vision of universal imperial power that's actually physically printed in the city. It's printed in the city. Um, in the the writing that's inscribed on on gates and steles, and also uh, the writing in gazetteers, and then within that, he's making use of what what I'd call the the magical landscape of the city, the the notion of chi. Um, maybe I should back up and say um, one of the ways I feel like this book I'm trying to use this book to contribute to the field is to join um, a real chorus of people. Uh, Wen Sheng Wang is one. Uh, Matthew Mosca is another. Um, Steve Platt, um, Steve Miles, uh, have all written, and, and others have written about sort of the 19th century as a distinctive unit, um, and to try to think about how does imperial power change in, in the course of the 19th century. Um, and uh, the idea is that there's a lot of increased localism, and the book is partly about kind of the tactics of that localism, like what does it look like in a particular place. Um, and in Nanjing, what's tricky about that is those tactics – um, are often things that have been used for a very, very long time, in some cases since the six dynasties. And the, the challenge for me was to take these words or tropes or activities that um, were used for a long time before the 19th century and a long time after the 19th century and to say, what is, what is specific about the context of the 19th century? How do they work in this time and place for these particular people? Um, and the Chilom chapter is trying to kind of introduce that idea for the emperor himself. Um, and the the idea is, um, of course, that the, so that if, if if you want to think about empire in the 19th century, it's embodied in the Qianlong Emperor. If you want to think about empire in Nanjing in the 19th century, it's embodied in the Qianlong Emperor who visits the city six times and who um, does these incredibly spectacular um, tours and who manipulates different aspects of the city. He, he goes to ruins. He um, talks about... Um, the royal chi of the landscape, the idea that Nanjing is a, a place particularly suited to imperial government. He talks about Zhu Yanzhang and the Ming Dynasty and talks about him as an inheritor of the mandate of heaven. Um, 
and as a as a um, you know a, a Chinese ruler, as well as displaying um, Manchu martial characteristics and uh, and patronage of Tibetan Buddhism and and everything else, all that is happening inside the city of Nanjing, even as it's happening around the rest of the empire. Um, so the, the chapter kind of sets that up in order to sort of ask what happens when Qianlong goes away. Like, there's this enormous um, expenditure of resources and symbolic and material energy in creating this imperial image. But then in the 19th century, uh, emperors don't come back. And so a lot of the tactics that Qianlong himself was adapting from um, from literati practice um, get reused again um, in order to construct other ideas of empire. So the idea is that Qianlong is himself modeling an idea of empire. He's also sort of showing how to do it. How, what way can you use these resources of the city to depict an empire? So when Qianlong, or when the tours stop, then other people kind of take up that same tactic to pr- promote very different images of empire. That's right. And the chapter does a really great job of kind of integrating some of the things that we've talked about already. I mean, you mentioned his efforts to um, kind of enact both his Chinese and his Manchu or inner Asian roles as an emperor. We've talked a little bit about the Ming tombs. You bring us into temples and ritual practices and the like, 96 poems he wrote about the story in this chapter. And it's not. Yeah, I don't translate all of them. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so by the end of the day, it's not just that um, others who come after him are, uh, you know, different, right? Or are um, e- extending what he did, but rather there's a reaction against all of this that characterizes the decades of, um, or that begin the 19th century, and that's really going to form the foundation of what's to come. This is a a series of years, these early decades of the 19th century, that are the beginnings of this age of utopian visions, right? The utopian visions that the book um, really takes us and do so beautifully. So in these early decades of the 19th century, Nanjing's literati are challenging this image of the emperor that Qianlong had established through his tours as what you call here the ultimate model of virtue. And instead, they're setting themselves up as arbiters of virtue, of moral truth. And they describe virtues here as permanent features of the cityscape. Virtues, um, as you describe here in chapter two, transcend time and space and remain embedded in particular sites in the city. Part of the way this is working is the way they are understanding chi of the city. And you just um, kind of invoke that a little bit um, in your previous discussion. They're arguing that Nanjing's chi is distinguishing it from other places. In part because of this chi, they're arguing that Nanjing is uniquely suited as a space to bring about transformations far beyond the city, in the empire and the cosmos. And the way that was going to happen is in part through ritual practices. So now since ritual is one of the three key kinds of practice um, through which these utopian visions are being um, enacted throughout the book, can you talk a little bit about, for you, um, what are some of the most interesting ways that ritual practices by these literati in this period, in this chapter, are um, enacting their particular vision of utopia and Nanjing's place within it? Um, yeah, I can try. Uh, um, the, um, I mean, the one that comes to mind is, uh, um, there's a, a, a group of scholars who meet regularly at, um, at one of the Confucian temples in Nanjing. Um, and that temple had once been, um, the temple of, a, um, a, the Ming Imperial Academy. And so, um, they write about this ritual and talk about this ritual as if Nanjing were um, still in some sense a Ming place, that they are um, part, that the qi, this sort of um, substance uh, that uh, pervades the city is, is um, retains the spirit and the kind of um, imperial quality of, of the Ming. So, um, so, Another way of thinking about that is that they are casting Nanjing as the center of the empire, or as a center of the empire. And by by doing that, by casting Nanjing as an imperial center, they can sort of make the ritual move of saying that their actions in the center will reverberate throughout um, throughout the empire. And um, and I think their their political ideal is that they 
um, they themselves will have a, a, a greater role in in politics and political decision making. Um, so the 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 kind of motivations I see are very similar to what uh, Philip Kuhn wrote about in um, his book uh, Ideas About Chinese Modern States. Um, but the tactic is a little different. It's um, using the cityscape and using ritual. Um, this might be as good a place as any to talk about um, kind of space and virtue and and how how I see these different ideas re- relating to each other because awesome. um, yeah. I haven't really laid that out yet. Um, so the idea is that um, Qianlong, uh, this group of scholars of local scholars in Nanjing, and then the Taiping, and uh, uh, and then Zhong Guofan after the Taiping, and then um, scholars in the post Taiping period. Um, are all using a similar kind of move. And that move is to say that we're going to make Nanjing a model of an ideal place. Um, we're going to, and so the world is not quite right. Um, we can depict what a perfect world would look like by, um, by showing uh, what that world, um, by, by, through ritual practice and through invoking cosmic ideas in Nanjing. Um, and again, that's through ritual, through writing about the city, through poetry, um, and through uh, construction. So um, in the case of the Confucian Temple, there's a world in which these scholars are imagining where they can make, the, where uh, y- the yin, yin, yin and yang are out of whack, and they can make them harmonious again through their own moral actions. Um, and that that will somehow reverberate through the entire empire. Um, and so they're depicting a cosmos. They're depicting uh, a form of government or of kind of effective action within the cosmos. They're trying to model, they're trying to depict the cosmos in Nanjing. They're trying to model the effective action in Nanjing. And they're also trying to school their followers in how to understand this truth. Um, so the way you do that, or one way to do that, is by modeling virtue. So one of the things, another form of ritual that um, these early 19th century scholars are doing is, um, is building shrines to moral exemplars. Mm-hmm. And um, I, think, I think the idea is that if you follow these moral exemplars, you will, you will become virtuous. And that virtue will both bring harmony to the cosmos, but it will also allow you to truly understand how the cosmos works. Um, so uh, virtue becomes kind of a point of contention among the different groups in the 19th century trying to um, argue for different images of the cosmos. If you're virtuous according to Taiping standards of virtue, then you will follow, um, then you will understand the Taiping cosmos and act accordingly. Um, if you are virtuous according to, uh, um, according to the, the conception of Yao Nai and other scholars in Nanjing in the early 19th century, then you will understand the cosmos differently and act in a way that will empower that group of scholars to uh, transform the empire. Um, so in each case, you're trying to use the physical space of Nanjing to depict and enact a political program that you're hoping will have effect all over the place. But in the meantime, what you can control is, is some aspect of Nanjing's cityscape. Um, so that's, that's the kind of move that I see being made over and over. Uh, in the case of Qianlong, I, I don't think he's trying. I don't think he's a utopian. He's not trying to um, transform the empire, but he's trying to model this this ideal cosmos. And then people, uh, I think, use similar tactics to um, to say in the nineteenth century that the cosmos is out of whack somehow and needs to be restored in some way. And one of the groups that's doing this um, is a group that comes up again throughout. Um, the book, um, either directly or indirectly, and this is the Taiping, right? The, um, yeah. So the Taiping occupation of Nanjing sets the stage for Chapter 3. The Taiping are also using the tactics of construction, writing, and ritual to use the city to display their own utopian vision. And their utopian vision is a vision of the Christian cosmos. So you describe this in Chapter 3. It's really striking. Nanjing is their capital and their little heaven. Um, They engage in urban construction projects. And there's a really interesting discussion in this chapter of their Sabbath rituals. Um, So uh, listeners who are particularly interested in that part of the story, there's, um, we'll have a lot um, that they can find and work through in Chapter 3. 
One of the really interesting things that's happening in light of or in the context of this particular manifestation of this particular utopian vision is there's a response by a figure here who is fascinating. This is Wang Shiduo. And this is somebody who stays home for the first two years of the siege and writes about his experience in his diary. Now, there's a lot more that happens with him. But what I'd like to do is maybe open up part of this chapter by asking you to talk a little bit about that diary. Um, so you have these readings of that diary um, that sort of help inform this part of the story throughout this chapter. And there are some moments that are really touching and really striking, and it just seems like a really fascinating source to work with. So can you talk a little bit about um, his diary as a source for you? And were there any particular moments in that diary that you found especially striking or interesting? Um, well, yeah. So um, this diary is something, so uh, the kind of, the larger issue and the moment that I was drawn to um, about Wang Shidua is you have nothing. You you lose all the uh, – so if you're a, a scholar in Nanjing, you lose all the libraries. You, you, you lose access to the ruins. You lose all the things that your um, – not just your livelihood and your family, but also your whole sort of conception of how things should work um, are based on. And um, – so uh, a way of thinking about virtue as in the way that I was talking about it just now is as a kind of agency. Um, different groups are arguing that virtue is an effective way of acting in the world. It's a different idea than uh, the way that I normally think of agency, which is an individual having choices. Um, if, but if you think about agency as the capacity to affect the world and the cosmos, like to have meaningful acts in life, um, I, think, I think a lot of people would – in the 19th century, we described that as, as a form of virtue. Um, but if your city is, is destroyed and you're chased out by these um, pseudo-Christians from the South, uh, you don't have access to the things, to the actions, to the ideas, to the libraries, to the texts that uh, kind of defined meaningful action, that defined virtue for you. So what do you do? So um, Wang Shidua is is wandering around in Anhui um, essentially as a refugee, uh, for quite some time. And this diary is a record of his um, kind of impressions and thoughts once he, once he reaches a relative s- safe location. Um, and it has all sorts of striking scenes because it's quite um, iconoclastic in its own way and it's quite desperate. Um, so uh, the passage that's probably the most uh, eye-grabbing and the, the, w- the place where listeners might have encountered the name Wang Shidua before uh, he makes an argument for female infanticide. Um, he, um, or he writes down at least that, uh, that, um, if, uh, um, that the, the, one of the root causes of all this disorder is overpopulation and suggests that, um, um, that, uh, um, that you can, obviously you can limit the population by, um, by, by killing people. Um, but it's a uh, um, so uh, mm-hmm. he makes that argument, and um, I'm not uh, I'm not going to be an apologist for female infanticide at all. But um, but it is striking that this that he makes that argument not in any public forum before or after the war, but only in this manuscript that um, where that seems to be an expression of despair. Um, that seems to be. Uh, um, just casting about for some way of having meaningful action in the world um, uh, uh, and of sort of remedying the situation around him that he can only understand using the tools that he's inherited, but the tools that he's inherited don't really give him um, the, the capacity to, to deal with the situation of being completely um, displaced. Um, and so I, I read that section of the diary against other sections of the diary where he talks about, for instance, the death of one of his daughters, learning of the death of one of his daughters, um, and, and of uh, and of mourning them, um, or uh, there's another um, there's another passage where he talks about um, eliminating all sections dealing with ritual from the Chinese classics. Um, again, a policy that he he would later be in a position to enact if he wanted to, and had uh, quite quite the contrary. He was key to uh, restoring the ritual landscape of Nanjing after the war. So. Um, the diary to me is just this 
um, incredible expression of kind of the null hypothesis. If virtue is agency, then what what does lack of agency look like? And and um, Wang Shuizhou's diary is, seems to be this whole meditation on what can I do when the things that I thought were virtuous don't seem to be effective. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the really um, fascinating and wonderful things about this chapter is your your description of your own reading of this moment in this diary, right? That's been, and you, and you talk about this in this chapter, that it's been read, this moment where he discusses female infanticide. Um, in one way, you're reading it in a very different way that really opens up the touching part of this story, right? The sort of what does it mean for a man who is writing this in his diary to be considering this as an alternative to other methods in this context where he is despairing, you know, and we have to then understand this in the context of his relationships with his daughters, with the women in his life. And I say all this because I think um, this is really a moment that shows that sometimes uh, I think often the best writers, um, which I count you among them, um, Chuck, the best writers are the most sensitive readers as well. And in order to write really sensitively, you need to be able to read really sensitively. And this book is really a model of how to do that. No. Well, that's kind of, um, just just one more thing. Um, that's another another huge change that happened from the dissertation to the book was that I had two daughters, <laughs> um, and um, and and you know Wang Shuo, I, I I sort of defend him. It's not really my purpose to defend him. Um, you know, he he continues to he, he countenances the idea of female infanticide, and he sings out. Fe- Singles out female infanticide as opposed to you know random selection of babies. Like uh, I, I don't, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that this is a a, a good idea or uh, excusing it, it is a concept. But um, uh, and um, if you want to kind of see the way that this is being understood, Frank Decutter has an article about him um, where he gives him the full Decutter, like uh, you know how <laughs> awful this is, and um, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do think it's a, um, a horrible passage and a horrible idea. But I think that um, Wong probably thought it was a horrible idea too, mm-hmm. um, and and so I read it as a sign of desperation. And um, you know, I, I read also uh, in the book the the passages where Wong describes the death of his daughters, which I just kind of passed over in the dissertation as being, you know, you know, war stinks. I, I, uh, I read them a little differently and that, um, that's not so much about writing and reading. It's more about, um, just different life experiences. But that's part of what it is to be a writer and a reader, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think that's what your own description of your own process in, you know, the transformations that you've experienced as a reader, this is very much the kind of transformation that we see, um, or that you're helping us see that's happening in this text. So I think that's great. And the other kind of, this is actually a nice segue into the next chapter, because another kind of text that we don't necessarily immediately think of as a text is the built landscape, right? And when you bring us into chapter four, you bring us into what's happening after the t- defeat of the Taiping. So after the defeat of the Taiping, Zheng Guofan and his personal army, and this whole notion of a personal army and how that comes into the um, picture, this is something that is discussed um, at the end of the previous chapter. So he and his personal army transform the city, and as you put it in this chapter, they redefine the relationship between Nanjing residents and the larger polity. And again, it's this sort of microcosm, macrocosm, um, relationship that we see recurring throughout the book, um, throughout these different kinds of utopian vision and the practices that emerge from them. Now, he and his army are constructing buildings, they're performing rituals, and they're mobilizing writing. And one of the really fascinating things here is that the scope of reconstruction in the city is extraordinarily broad. He had an unusual control over the physical reconstruction of Nanjing, and it's really that physical reconstruction that stands out as being extraordinary in this chapter. So I'm just going to open this up for you. For you, what are some of the most, um, maybe one or two of the most important aspects of this physical reconstruction that's happening for us to understand in order for us to understand what you think is most important about this chapter? Yeah. Um, I mean, um, <laughs> um, I, 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 this, this chapter was, was part of the dissertation and uh, I, uh, I remember presenting it to Ben Elman um, and uh, he was thrilled that one of the first things that Zung had uh, 
had rebuilt was the uh, examination compound. Right. <laughs> um, he just thought that was uh, <laughs> and that really was, fast, right? Yeah, really exactly. Quickly. Exactly. So the the point of this chapter is that um, there is great scarcity of material resources. So um, it's if you are building a building in in Nanjing in 1864, 1865, 1866, you have decided to build that building and not other buildings. And um, it took me a long time in researching the dissertation to figure out that Zheng Guofan was the person making these decisions. My, um, my original proposal said that I was going to go to the first historical archive and read all, um, you know, read all about the reconstruction of Nanjing in the, um, in the uh, Palace Memorials. And uh, the Palace Memorials were pretty silent on the subject. Um, and uh, so I got back from Beijing and had to figure out how to write a dissertation. Um, and it took me a while to figure out that it was, it was these uh, um, clerks and, and sort of uh, followers of Sun Guofan who had really taken charge in, those, in that period. So, and, and they decided that the examination compound, the Confucian temple, um, and a series of shrines to, uh, um, to the fallen – were going to be among the most important sites that they they created. Um, alongside that, there was the, uh, the, uh, the the banner compound, which was also rebuilt relatively early, although in a much uh, much reduced form uh, from its earlier uh, glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I take that to, to mean is that um, is it, it's just another illustration of the importance to ritual to Tsongguofan, the the sense that um, you cultivate virtue by teaching people rituals. And I think I quote extensively from a, um, from a, um, from an essay he wrote, um, when a, uh, what has previously been a Taoist temple compass, uh, complex, the, um, Chaotian temple was rebuilt as a Confucian temple. And, um, Zhang Guofan uses this moment to, to reflect on what ritual means and how, um, you know, it's a, it's a, fairly standard Neo-Confucian argument, but one that gets new meaning in this destroyed landscape that, um, you know, because ritual is the way that you come to virtue and it's the way that you learn to deal with people and that it really um, is what is going to preserve social order. The, the idea that, um, that, you know, you could have the Taiping emerge again was still kind of alive or something like the Taiping emerge again was still kind of alive in the 1860s. Um, and so, um, and so Zhang sees um, these rituals is both fundamentally to being human, but also fundamental to maintaining maintaining social order, and and that's one of the reasons that he um, he gives them such priority. Now, if Zheng Guofan is reconstructing the physical city, Chen Zuolin is reconstructing the poetic city, and so Chapter Five and Chapter Four, when taken together, give us give us really interestingly. Um, kind of resonant perspectives on these different aspects of utopian construction and reconstruction. So chapter five takes us into the reassembling of the poetic city, as you call it, um, in the title of this chapter by Chen Zuolin. And what's happening here, um, I mean, I, I would love actually, Chuck, to have two more hours just to talk about this <laughs> chapter because it's fascinating and there's so much going on here. And I'm just going to name some of the things before I open it up and ask you to speak to it. Um, so the chapter takes us into the process of recovering texts that Chen and others um, are collaborating on. And part of what's going on here is a commemoration of the dead. I mention this because these poems and biographies that they're composing to commemorate the dead include um, just some amazing stories of the sort of loyalty and righteousness that they're celebrating um, while they are using uh, these poems and biographies to celebrate and reconstruct Nanjing as a center of virtue. And these include stories of a poet who dresses like a ghost and jumps out at passersby to scare them. And then, you know, you're, you're reading this and you're thinking, oh, haha, that's so like wacky. And then he drowns himself and you're kind of right. smacked across the face with holy crap, you know? And then you get these stories like this over and over again. There's a man and his brother who burn down their home and drown themselves with 18 members of their family. There's another um, figure in this chapter that comes up in a different section, Gao De Tai, who um, in the face of a, a typing assault is sealed into a pot with the rest of his family. Um, this is his father's plan to have them all kill themselves, right, in the face of this assault. And Gao is actually saved by neighbors. But there are these moments of just incredibly um, disconcerting, uncanny, uh, transformation in a very, very short amount of 
time in a very, very like short amount of text where you're giving us these stories that start with, whoa, and end with, oh, you know, so it's a very, very powerful series of um, little accounts and biographical vignettes that we get interspersed in this chapter. Okay, so in speaking of little, one of the other things that's happening in this chapter, which is fascinating Re, um, sort of resonates with or reproduces this theme that um, we've been talking about for um, the entire conversation in different ways, which is this theme of the microcosmic and the macrocosmic, right? The city, the empire, and the cosmos. And this comes up in a really fascinating way in your account of Chen Lin's descriptions of streets and bridges and neighborhoods in his writing. Um, and this is also something that um, we can use to maybe highlight the role of gazetteers here. So that's what I'm going to um, ask you to talk a little bit about. Chen Zuolin, um, why is he writing? Well, first of all, what do we need to know about him to know why he's so important here? And why is he writing these accounts of these minuscule kinds of units? And for you, um, what's particularly interesting about them? Yeah. Um, well, Chen Suilin, um comes from a, um, a family that had long um, been interested in local history. So his father and his grandfather had both been in kind of Nanjing literary circles um, before the war. Um, and um, after the war, um, the possibility of losing that history, meaning uh, um, n- not that you wouldn't know the stories exactly, but that the the accumulated textual accomplishments of Nanjing residents, the, the poetry and the, um, the stories and the, the virtues would also needed recovering. Um, that uh, really moved him. And he took part uh, in particular in compiling these, um, as, as you described in these accounts of, um, of uh, loyal and righteous during the Taiping. Um, at the same time, he, he starts to um, go into exacting detail about particularly Nanjing neighborhoods. So these are gazette- these are gazetteers of neighborhoods. Um, and um, if you read other descriptions of Nanjing, like visits by foreigners or even, even some travel accounts um, by, uh, by Chinese visitors, uh, Nanjing sounds like a backwater. It sounds like nothing's going on at all. On at all. But Chen gives the opposite impression. He gives the impression that um, of just... Um, abounding fecundity there's a there's a cornucopia of kind of economic activity and and um the idea he seems to be promoting is that if if everybody um kind of follows this example of um returning to virtue um that they can then um produce things um and he has this long list of the kind of products that nanjing uh, supposedly produces and um, this is kind of its own utopia, right? That the idea that um, it's individual action, it, literati can direct uh, commoners to act in a virtuous way. When they act in a virtuous way, they do things that are productive. They grow things, they make things, um, and that kind of productivity can result in um, the strengthening of the empire. So it's a it's a it's a funny kind of literary take on the Zixiang, the self strengthening movement. Um, and some of the uh, some of the uh, prefaces suggest that it also ties in with um, Datong, the kind of great unity that Kang Youwei will uh, become famous for. Um, and uh, so that's who Chen Zuolin is, and that's the the kind of move he's trying to make. He's trying to sort of maintain Nanjing as a as a um, as a center of empire, as a place that can be a model for action. Um, and he's doing that in part by by writing these um, incredibly specific descriptions of the city, which are are tied into his larger project of kind of recovering the history and the the cultural heritage of the city, which has been damaged and dispersed during the war. Thank you, Chuck. Now, as we move um, from the body chapters to the conclusion, we move forward in time. The conclusion traces these utopian visions that we've been talking about of and for Nanjing into the early 20th century. And it talks about what's happening um, by uh, later uh, scholars, activists, politicians who are associated with the Republican period. So for you, what are some of the most important ways that Republicans are transforming 
are building on and or are extending these utopian visions that we've been talking about. So for you, what's the most um, kind of fascinating um, element or elements of this later part of the story as we move forward in time into the 20th century and beyond? Sure. Well, I mean, I would say that um, a, a, a huge difference between um, a lot of the more um, sort of widely available and well-known forms of Republican activism and uh, the 19th century kind is, is the notion of progress. The, um, the, the, in the 19th century, all the people that I talk about are looking to a return to an imagined past where everything was in order and in equilibrium. Um, and the Republican thinkers are mostly talking about moving forward and developing and uh, becoming a strong nation uh, with informed citizens. Um, not universally so, but mostly. But um, what's inter- one thing that's interesting to me is that they're using some of the same um, types of techniques, that uh, ritual remains important, particularly r- rituals commemorating the dead. Um, and there are a lot of ties um, uh, to Henrietta Harrison's work, both her work on ritual um, and also in this chapter, in the, in the one we just talked about on Chen's Willeen, there's, a, um, I think, a lot connecting it to um, her book, Man Awakened from Dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so that um, in ritual, in writing gazetteers, in being interested in local history, in sort of celebrating the local as a kind of laboratory of progress um, and what Michael Chin has called the, the invention of the idea of society, um, Republican uh, visionaries are are using some similar kinds of tactics, but to different ends and in in, in, in different combinations. Um, so that's that's what I think is kind of the legacy. They're, they're on the one hand react the, the 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 utopian visions that I talk about in the book, I think are important partly because they are um, political repertoires that Republicans are that are sort of the starting point. It's it's what Republicans grow up with. Um, as the, uh, Republicans, meaning not not people who advocate a republic, but people who live in the Republican period, um, it's what it's what people in the 20th century have grown up with and who know as sort of their starting point for political activism. But it's also their point of departure, right? They're they are reacting against um, the the previous generation, and particularly its focus on the the devastation of the of the Taiping. So, Chuck, now that we've come um, to the end of the book, we've come to our conclusion. Now, there's a million, billion more things that we could talk about. It's a very rich study. Um, and we've you know skipped over a lot of things that uh, listeners will find when they actually open the book and read the book. But in the meantime, and is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, well, I just thought I'd conclude by um, – oh, um, by taking up a thread that's in the in, in the conclusion that um, I've gotten really annoyed lately with um, what is a necessary kind of rhetorical move, but um, that I find quite limiting. The idea that um, China or anywhere else has sort of three possible outcomes. Um, I've been seeing a lot l- lately with the stock market crash, but uh, it's kind of universal. There'll be somebody writing an editorial and there'll be, this could happen or this could happen or this could happen. Um, and of course, you're limited by space, so you can't present that many outcomes in a, in a, in an, in an article, but, um, it just seems to me, it, it creates a habit of mind that there are limited possibilities and that you can know what the possibilities are. Um, and what I'm trying to say in the end of the book is that some of the stuff that, um, created these utopian visions, some of the tactics are still kind of available to people. There, um, people still write local history, people still perform rituals, um, and they don't, they don't come together and they don't have the same ends as they did in the 19th century. But if you really kind of pay attention to that kind of – the kinds of practices that I talk about in the book of the 19th century, if you paid attention to them then, if you paid attention to them now, you can have a much broader sense of the, of the possibilities of what, um, of what people are imagining. And uh, uh, I think it could be a, a kind of corrective for um, what I see as a fairly – uh, uh, limiting way of, of thinking about the future as like, um, you know, either the party is going to be in power or the party is not going to be in power. Um, it just seems to be that there are so, so many more possibilities than that. Um, and so many more things that are important to, to people that they are in fact articulating one way or another that, um, scholars could, would do well to pay more attention to. So now that the book is out and congratulations on what I hope it's obvious um, that I think is a, a beautifully written book as well as a beautifully argued book, what's next for you? What are you currently working on? Um, you know, I have this um, 
I have various kind of ideas. Um, the, I think the next book is going to be taking the ritual bits from my dissertation that didn't go into this book and, and writing really about um, state ritual in the 19th century. But um, I'm also just have a lot of little bits and pieces. Um, I'm still thinking about the Taiping. Um, and there are a number of figures who I find really, really interesting. Um, and I also find the Taiping itself really interesting. So um, something I've been thinking a lot about is a comparison of the Taiping with some other monarchies um, that were around at the same time um, who also were iconoclastic. So I think my next project is going to be um, probably an article-length piece on, on iconoclasm. Um, and I've gotten particularly interested in the question of um, when you destroy something, what does that tell you about the thing? So uh, when this, if the, the, the way that the Taiping go about destroying Chinese gods and their rationale for destroying Chinese gods, does that teach us something about Chinese gods? Um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if it does or it doesn't, but it's what I'm kind of starting to think about. That's awesome, and that would totally make an awesome book. So write that book. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about it. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Chuck. It's really been a pleasure. And thanks thank for making the Thank you, Carla. I always enjoy talking to you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>